Jesus plainly says our actions here are rewarded. The one who asks, he gets. The one who knocks opens. The one who seeks will find. And I have a question is, do you believe that, Christian? You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. morning. Privileged to be back here with you all. We're going to be looking at a wonderful topic that uh, really warmed my heart as I was studying and preparing as Maiska asked me to sub in for him. Um, But before we do that, I want to just reintroduce myself. I know most of you. I know a lot of you, in fact, and I'm sure a lot of you know me, but there may be some, some attenders, uh, even some members who might not know who I am. My name is Ryan. Uh, my wife and I, Roxanne, and our two children, Theodore and Ophelia, we've been attending the church for a very long time. I've been here for almost over eight years and um, was called Shoreline way back when, as most of you remember those days. And um, it's just an honor and a privilege to be here, standing with you, worshiping our God uh, in spirit and in truth. So we are in the home stretch now of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous teachings that uh, even non-believers know about. And there have been many, many good lessons from, from our Lord that we can glean and that we have learned. We've learned how to not be hypocritical in our giving, in our prayers, in our fasting. Unlike the Pharisees, the ones that all the pomp and the circumstance and they loved getting that reward, that immediate reward. But we know that those who do this in secret, your father who sees in secret, he will reward us. We've learned how to judge rightly. Not that judgment in itself is bad, but hypocritically judging is bad. We see our Lord uh, commending us to remove the plank of wood, the log in our eye, before we then go after the speck in our brothers. We're not told not to get the speck but we're told to do it in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. A couple weeks ago, we learned how to not be anxious. And I know that in our day and age, it seems like that is a tough pill to swallow, a tall order indeed. But we learned that because God cares for his created order, the lilies, the birds, the grass, how much more will he take care of us? So we need not be anxious because we are in the hands of our Father. We've learned how to not retaliate when people come against us, when they slander us, when they revile us, they tell false stories about us. We are to do what? Turn the other cheek. And also, we've learned how to love our enemies. It does not mean that we are a doormat for them, but it means that we love them enough to give them the gospel completely unfiltered, that we call them to repentance and call them to worship our king. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but today's teaching is going to be no different. There are many practical lessons that we are going to learn from the words of our Lord this morning. And in my time of study, I was, again, warmed by this topic. I felt like a miner going, you know, down deep into a trench and looking for precious, precious jewels, artifacts, precious stones, gold, to then bring it back and to share it with you. And I think we have struck something beautiful in the teachings of our king. 
So let's pray to our Lord for provision, that our time would be fruitful, that these gems would be precious to all of us as we approach the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that it provides to our lives. We thank you that you are not a stuffy God of just mere theology and doctrine, but that this doctrine and a theology, it applies to our lives. It makes us fuller. It helps us to understand you better so that we can serve you and worship you in truth. Lord, be with us today as we approach your text that my infirmities would not inhibit your word from going forth, that we would hear the word and we would do the word. In your name we pray, amen. For those of you taking notes, I do not have it on the screen, forgive me, but I've titled today's sermon, A Good Father. And here's a rough breakdown of where we're going to be going. Verses seven through eight, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to ask, to seek, to knock. Uh, We're going to be doing a quick little word study on each of those words as well in the Greek. Verses nine through 11, we're going to see our good father, that our father in heaven is indeed a good and trustworthy father. And lastly, in verse 12, we're going to see our behavior in light of him being a good father as sons and daughters. So in our text, we are going to see front and center the character of the God that you and I serve and how it ought to change our lives as Christians. We should be moved by his character. And granted, there is a huge difference between knowing things about God and knowing God. So my prayer is not that we would store up mere theology that only puffs up, but that our theology would be rightly fixed upon the person that we serve and it would move us to compassion. It would move us to be formed more into the image of his son. And as his adopted children, through the glorious work of Christ and the renewal of his spirit, you and I can call the maker of the universe, Abba, We can call him Father. We're going to see how he cares for us, how he wants us to come to him, how he enjoys to bless those that are his, but maybe not in a way that you might think. So before we get to our text this morning, I have a quick question. How do you view God? To put it another way, what do you believe about the nature of God? Granted, some of you may think that he's merely a genie. He's a butler. That we rub that little lamp in prayer and then all of a sudden he's giving us things that we desire. Some of you may think he's not there at all. That he's completely absent. That there is no such thing as God. That you and I, we're just bags of flesh and chemicals firing. Some of you here may think that he's an angry cop waiting for you just to you're going 50, 51's the, or excuse me, your 50 is the speed limit. You're going 51. He's just going to slam the hammer on you. He's going to arrest you and take you away. And he's just, he's just waiting for that opportunity. Some of you may think he's cold, that he is unloving, that he is not who he claims to be. And others of you may think that he is far off, that he simply made everything that we can see in like a top, span it, and walked away. But all of these stereotypes, all of these 
perceptions that we have of God are false. He is the prototypical being of all creation. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-good. And in fact, he is the archetypical. He is the highest standard of goodness that one can look towards. He is the progenitor of it, which means it originates with him in his nature. Scripture is very clear about how good of a God we serve. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 145, 9, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. And Nahum 1, 7, The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. I could literally continue for many minutes citing passage after passage after passage of how good God is. And it's my goal this morning to convince you of the goodness of our God. Because without his goodness, nothing we study today makes sense. In fact, our practice, our religion, him sending his son, none of it would make sense if it were not for his innate goodness. And this is so important that we understand because if we have wrong views of God, we will end up in heresy. If we have wrong views of him, our theology will be flawed. And by byproduct, our lives as Christians will be impotent. If we are honest, I think we struggle to grasp just how God, just how good he is, myself included. He is not like the gods of the ancient world who are wicked. He is not some trickster like Loki, the god of mischief, or a warmonger like Ares, the god of war. He is steadfast and good towards his people, towards his adopted children. He has brought us into the fold of his family, making his enemies his friends, turning foreigners now into citizens of Zion, his holy kingdom. This is a sweet doctrine that we must understand rightly. And if we don't, everything we study today will not make sense to you. If you have a skewed view of the Father and who he is and his character, you will not find solace in what we are going to study this morning. You will scoff at it. You will say liar. And as we know that God cannot lie. Every man is a liar, yet God be true. And so I must say thank you for bearing with me as we moved through that, as we set the table. But now let us feast upon the words, the sweet words of our king. Verse 7. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. These three words are quite interesting. Ask in the Greek actually has four different words that can be used. They all have slightly different flavors, different degrees of neediness or expediency. The word here that Jesus uses, it's called aiteo, and it means to request, to ask, to beg, to call for, to crave, and to desire. And when this verb is used, it is usually used in what we call the middle voice. 
meaning it's not quite an active verb, something that you are continually doing. Like if I were to run, that is an active verb. But it's also not quite a passive verb, like I am living. That is not something that I am actively doing, and yet it is still a verb. So it's kind of this in-between. And the reason why, and this is fascinating, is when you look at the usage of this word in situations from the classics, it is generally used by a weaker person asking a stronger person for help in a matter that has gotten kind of out of hand. Or it's also used for a poorer person who is requesting the aid of a wealthier person to solve some financial matter. So we have this interesting dynamic. We have this, the lesser calling upon the greater for some type of assistance. And it's not just, hey, I need some help. It's a act of desperation. If you do not help me, I am ruined. If you do not give me this loan, I am toast financially. If you do not intercede for me in this situation, I have no hope to keep it under control. I think that is an apt picture. It's a very interesting picture. Next, the word seek. This is the same word that Jesus used previously in chapter 6, verse 33, where he commands us to seek first the kingdom. The Greek word is zeteo, and it means loosely to get to the bottom of something, to investigate, to focus on diligently. The idea that it should conjure up is, think of hunting for something, for seeking out something that was lost and that you're not stopping until it is found. And this was interesting in God's providence. I was working on the teaching. I was on this part of the sermon when on Friday night, my son came to me before bed and he said, Daddy, can I wear my Spidey shirt to bed? He, he loves Spider-Man. He's obsessed with it. And he, he has a specific shirt that he, he would wear literally 24-7. It would be his skin if he had the option. And I said, sure, that should be no problem. Go find it and I'll help you put it on. And about two minutes later, he comes back. And he says, Daddy, I, I can't find it. I said, did you ask mommy? He said, yes. So I got up and I went and I said, Roxanne, we're looking for the shirt. Do you know where it is? She said, no, I don't. So I went through his drawers all of his shirts, every single one. Is this one it? No. Is this one it? No. Okay, it's not here. Different drawer. Same thing. Ripping it apart. Is this one it? No. Is this one it? No. Finally, we go to the dirty laundry bin. We're ripping it out. We're seeking for it. We can't find it still. And now I see the, the temperament of my, you know, four-year-old son. He's starting to lose a little hope. And you can't help but as a father, see that in, in your child. And it just like ignites something in you. And so now I call grandma. Grandma, we're looking for the shirt. Do you have it? No. We call Aunt Nana. Have you seen him in this shirt? No, I, I, we haven't. We start looking in the living room. We start looking in the kitchen. Anywhere where it could potentially be. And we finally find it. It was in the car, in a backpack that he doesn't use. That is the type of seeking that Jesus is referring to here. It is going until it is done. And it's a beautiful picture. Next, our word knock. Actually, this one's really simple. We won't spend too much time on this. It means simply to knock. Cruo. But why do we knock? What is, what is the purpose of our knocking? Well, it's to be let in. 
It's to get one's attention. It is to let the occupants who are already inside know that you are there of your presence so that they can open the door, that your way can be cleared. And what's really fascinating is that all three of these Greek words are in the present tense, meaning you can actually translate ask as continue asking or seek as continue seeking or knock as continue knocking. This is something that he is saying to do continually and perpetually. You and I are to be somewhat annoying, actually, if we think about it. And we see this highlighted in Luke 11. There is a somewhat of a mirror image of the text that we are preaching on tonight and we are studying, excuse me, this morning. And Jesus is dealing with the topic of prayer at hand. He goes to the Lord's Prayer again. You see that. And before he kind of gets to the text that we're talking about, and I do think these are separate occasions, by the way, no textual variants here, he tells a quick parable of a man whose friend late at night comes into town to visit him. And in that day and age, it was very, very improper not to treat your guests to some type of food, of drink, of something, to entertain them, despite whatever time it was. So this man goes to his kitchen, opens his cupboards. There's nothing there. So he's like, oh man, I'm in trouble. I am, this is not, not going to go well. So what does he do? He goes to his friends, his neighbors, and it's late. He's knocking on the door. And his neighbor says, go away. I'm, I'm in bed already. I'm, I'm with my children. I, I can't help you. But what does the friend do? He keeps knocking. He keeps knocking. And he keeps knocking. And finally, finally, the other friend gets out of bed and goes, oh, okay, here, take what you need. And what Jesus said is, is very interesting. He says, it's not the love that the one friend had for the other. It was the fact that he kept on knocking. It was the continual and the perpetual action that is what drove the one friend to go help his neighbor. I think that's absolutely fascinating. We're to do this continually. We're to do this perpetually without ceasing. It's in the present tense. So then what is the result of this asking, of this seeking, of this knocking. Let's look at verse eight. He says, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Interesting. Jesus plainly says our actions here are rewarded. The one who asks, he gets. The one who knocks opens. The one who seeks will find. And I have a Slight question is, do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that when you ask of the Lord, he will indeed grant? Do you believe that when you seek him and his will and his kingdom that you will actually find it? And do you believe that when you knock on the gates of heaven that they will actually be open for you? What we ask for, we receive. What we seek, we find. What we knock, the door is open. These are words of warm invitations from our Father. They are challenges for us. We are to continually be in prayer and we are to persist in our prayers. And God promises that he hears us, that he listens. How often are we slow to do these things? Are we not slow to ask God for guidance and help. 
Are we not slack in seeking his kingdom and rather seeking our own? How many of us tire, unlike the persistent neighbor in Luke's gospel, from knocking on heaven's door? We might think that prayer is just some exercise in instant gratification. What we pray for, we should get now. That God needs to move on our behalf now. Or perhaps it's just a way that we stretch our spiritual legs. We just kind of take a stroll in prayer every once in a while. I fear we don't actually believe that prayer does anything in the life that we live. And now hear me quickly. This is important. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not the gospel of health and wealth. Just because you pray for a $25 million jet does not mean you are getting it. Just because you pray for the good diagnosis does not mean it is coming. We have to learn how to balance these things. Because if we go too far in one direction, then we're sounding like Benny Hinn. But if we go too far in the other direction, we're denying God of his goodness. This is a careful line that we must walk. And before we move to our next point, I do think there is a quick note that we should take on prayer that I think will help illuminate what exactly Christ is saying here. Whatever our desires are, good or bad, we ought to bring them before the Lord in prayer. Excuse me, this is how I want us to to think about this. If our desires are for something good, for something that would glorify God, that would be into accordance with his will, it is an opportunity for us to exercise faith in our Father. It is an opportunity for us to trust that the Lord is indeed good, that he cares for us, that he wants our good. It's not easy to wrap your mind around. The second way I want us to think about this is the mere opposite. What do we do if our desires are not good? What do we do if our desires are actually wicked, that they are contrary to the will of the Lord? If it's something of the flesh rather than something of the spirit, this is now an opportunity to again, to go to our good and loving father in the form of confession. That he would mold us and bring us into accordance with what is good and spiritual. That is what Christ is getting at. He's not saying he's just some random lottery slot that you pull it and then out comes money or out comes whatever you want. But when we pray, he conforms us further into the image of his children, to the image of his son. So then this leads us to another question. Where then does our confidence come from? How can we have faith when we ask that we will receive? How can we have faith that when we seek, we indeed will find, or when we knock, it will be open? And it's because of this. You and I have an exceedingly good father. Verses 9 through 11, let's read them. Illustrates this in spades. He says, Or which one of you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or he, if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, I love that dig. <laughs> you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is using a comparison here to frame God's character. He is using our earthly fathers as an example. The question's flat. What father would give his son a rock to eat rather than a piece of bread when he asks? Or what father would give his daughter a serpent instead of some fresh fish? The rhetorical answer is no father, no good father anyway. And I think these are rhetorical because we all know that any father worth his salt would provide good things for his children and not things that would harm or would hurt them. And on a side note, I think this is why Paul in 1 Timothy 5 states that the father who fails to provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Because even the unbelievers do this. And this father has indeed denied the faith via his actions. It has robbed God of his goodness. It has painted a lying picture of the father. And that will not stand. So if our earthly fathers know how to give us good things, then how much more will our heavenly father know how to give us good gifts? Just think of all the good gifts he's given us. Even the small things like taste buds to enjoy good food and drink. Companionship via our spouses, our families, our churches. Provision in our daily lives, whether financially or some opportunity that we can act upon. Gorgeous and diverse climates to enjoy his creation. We were just in Colorado. Man, the grandeur, the, maj the majesty of God's creation is just par excellence. The variety in cultures and customs. The death of Christ on behalf of sinners who are ruined and without hope. The faith then required to respond to that death with repentance. The Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers us and helps us to obey and to love him. Life and breath in our lungs and the ability to sing of the sweetness and the goodness of our King. These are all very good gifts. James 1.7 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the fathers of lights. So church, we have so much to thank our Father for. But on the flip side, we also have so much to repent of due to our lack of faith and trust in our Father. If we are honest, you and I, we have such little faith, do we not? Despite God coming through for us time after time after time and giving us good and good and greaterly good gifts, you and I still do what? We falter. But take heart, sinner, for his mercies are new each and every morning. Do not get stuck in despair. Yes, you and I have faltered. Yes, this is true. However, he is faithful to forgive us. So I want to encourage us this week to write down ways that God has taken care of us. Don't let spiritual 
memory loss. Claim the deeds that God has done for you. And in fact, I'm, I'm giving you homework, actually. I want all of us, when we go home, after we eat, after our members meeting, sit with your family and write down 10 things, 10 good gifts that God has given you. Whether that was provision, answered prayer, whatever it is, write it down together as a family. Put it somewhere where you're going to see it and meditate just on how good he is. We should look to him always and praise him for his goodness. And it's out of God's goodness that you and I as his children take our cues of how to act. Because we are his children, we therefore ought to emulate him in our lives. Verse 12. He says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, are familiar with this phrase, the golden rule. And in fact, most of our subheadings in your Bibles will probably say something like the golden rule or even the royal rule. Even the world recognizes this teaching and principle, or at least in the West, I should say, but much injustice is done to our fellow man when we forget this teaching. Man can be so quick to forget how to treat others in a way that he ought or wants to be treated. John Calvin has a great quote. He says this, Where our own advantage is concerned, there is not one of us who cannot explain minutely and ingeniously what ought to be done. And since every man shows himself to be a skillful teacher of justice for his own advantage, how come that the same knowledge does not readily occur to him when the profit or loss of another is at stake? But because we wish to be wise for ourselves only, and no man cares about his neighbor. Interesting. The golden rule is a widely accepted ethic. However, I would argue that it is impossible to keep if you do not have God as your father and access to his goodness. Unless Christ has died for you, unless his blood covers you in the presence of the father, you are not a son. You are not a daughter. You have no hope. Unless you have been born again, unless his word dwells in you richly, this is not something you can accomplish. The world loves this. I think it's so funny how the unbelieving world so desperately wants the kingdom and yet they hate its king. Isaiah 8.20 says, To the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them at all. Spurgeon has a good quote on this too. He says, The law and the prophets are here condensed into a single sentence. This is the golden rule, a handy rule, a perpetually applicable rule, useful in every condition, and it never makes a mistake. What a wonderful condensation of the two tables of the law. God help us to remember it. This is indeed a, a golden rule, and he who follows it shall lead a golden life. And in fact, Jesus, in, in his own words, later in the book of Matthew, in chapter 22, gives us some insight 
on what he means when he's referring to how this is the law and the prophets. If you mark this down, it's going to be verses 37 through 40. Go read it later. I am going to read it here very quickly. But the context of what's happening is those pesky Pharisees, again, are trying to catch Jesus in some type of catch-22. They ask him, Lord, what is the, what is the greatest commandment? And this is his response. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Notice with me quickly that the golden rule, what is it rooted in? What is the golden rule rooted in? We can only love our neighbors if you and I first love our heavenly father. Love for God is what leads, therefore, to a love of neighbor. You cannot hope to have a correct horizontal relationship without first having that vertical relationship corrected. It is impossible. And why do you and I love God? Well, it's because he loved us first. He lavished his goodness upon us through the form of Jesus Christ, his son. It is all connected back to God and his character. So I ask again, church, how do you view God? Is he some ogre in the sky who has his club and he's just waiting to, for you to step out of line? Is he that angry cop who's just ready to haul you off? Is he that absent father who says he'll be there but never shows up? Is he an abusive father who takes your well-being for granted? Is he a selfish father who puts the needs of himself above you? Absolutely not. He's a good, good father. So we've seen that we are to ask, we are to seek, we are to knock. We've seen how God is a good father, how he uses earthly fathers as an example, but how he himself is the epitome of what a good father is. And we've looked at how we are to treat one another based on having God as our father. So let's move to some application in close. I have four points. Our first is this, directed towards parents. And it's this, aim to emulate your heavenly father in the discipline and rearing of your children. Marriage and parenting are wonderful pictures of Christ and wonderful pictures of the Father. Quickly, for example, husbands, you are a picture of Christ in the home towards your children. They ought to see you love your wife in a way that is self-sacrificial, <coughs> excuse me, self-sacrificial, that is jealous for her. When they look at you, they should see how Christ loved his church and gave his life up for it. Wives as well, in the same vein, when your children look at you, they ought to see an example of how the church submits to its head, Christ. And where there's a picture of the father in parenting, particularly, is in discipline. It's in discipline. 
Parents, because God has been so good to you, you too ought to be good to your children. If you are not disciplining them, that is a problem. But if you are disciplining them and it's out of anger or wrath and not out of love and care, you might as well not discipline them at all. Why? Because you are a lying picture of your heavenly father. He does not treat you that way. He does not abuse you. It must be done out of love and care. And Hebrews 12 is a wonderful resource that I would commend all of you to go read. It talks about how all discipline, when it happens, seems to chafe. We all chafe under it. We don't like it. And yet, it shows that we are cared for and we are loved. Failing to discipline your child is an act of hatred towards them and selfish towards yourself. You are not loving your little neighbor when you abdicate your responsibility to discipline them. But we must do it in a way that honors and glorifies God. Secondly, point of application number two, children. So that goes for you, Bo. Emmy. Zeke. I was thinking of you little ones when I was coming up with this. Your parents may fail. However, your good and heavenly father will never fail. It's okay, Bobo. <laughs> Children, listen to me. Your parents are not perfect. There will be times when they falter, when they fail, when they mess up. And I want to encourage you to give them grace for when they blow it. But you should not be putting all of your stock in your parents. Yes, you should look up to them. Yes, you should obey them. You should look to them as examples. However, the only father that will never fail you ever is your heavenly father. This is why when scripture says to obey your parents, it doesn't say obey them for the sake of your parents. No, it says as unto the Lord. So often, and I know I did this, children place unrealistic expectations on their parents that can lead to issues later in life. I remember the first time that I saw my dad sin and how it broke my understanding and it, it truly did push me away from the faith for a very long time. Your parents will fail, but the encouragement is this, that your heavenly father will not. So instead of relying on them solely, look to your heavenly father to provide for you and for them. Pray that they would look to the same Holy Father and his goodness and for his provision. Pray for them heartily that they will rely on their heavenly father in the same way that you are called to do. Third point, and this is for all of us, remember the goodness of our father through the death of the son. Life has such a strange way of making the most magnificent truths seem dull. The saying that familiarity breeds contempt is no doubt true, especially in the Christian life, I believe. But I want to challenge us to look upon how the Father in his goodness sent his own son to die a death that you and I deserve. He did not have to do this. This is an extension of his goodness, of his being, of who he is. Just think of where you would be had God not adopted you. 
Just think of what a mess your life would be apart from his intervention. He did not have to do this. He could have left us there in our filth and in our sin, and he would have been completely justified in damning each and every one of us to a separation from him for all of eternity. And yet he didn't. He reached down and he saved us. Hallelujah. What a good God you and I serve. And fourth, lastly, to the non-believer or to the skeptic. Maybe you are here today and you think this is all just weird religion and you have no understanding of this goodness that we are talking about. And I would simply bid you to come and to taste. Come and see for yourself just how good God has been. Ask those here today just how sweet God has been to them. Challenge them to tell you of the grace and the mercy and the joy and the elation that you have experienced thanks to the Father saving them. In your natural state, you are a sinner. You are outside of God's family. You deserve to die because of the offense against God and his goodness. Though you woke up today, and you have life, you have spit upon the care that God has given to you through another day of life. Instead of praising him, you heap upon him scorn and malice. So I challenge you, I call you, I implore you, I plead with you, turn from your sin, cry out for mercy, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. And how do I know this? because I serve a good God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are our heavenly father, that you give us such good gifts. Lord, help us to continually rely upon you, to ask, to seek, to knock, that we would do this continually in our lives, that we would rely upon you deeper each and every day. Lord, help us to not forget all of the good things that you have given us, all of the situations that you have come through for us, and most importantly, your son's death on our behalf. Lord, we are not good. We confess that today. We thank you for working into us. Help us to be molded further into the image of yourself, or excuse me, of your son as we co-heir with him. Thank you for making a way, for covering us, we worship you, Lord. You indeed are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless. Thank you.